Uh, well, if you are joining us this morning, welcome. You have joined us on a Sunday that is the last session of our annual church retreat. Uh, so hopefully you are either here or watching at home and not uh, banging on the doors of San Mateo High wondering why no one is inside. Well, our speaker this morning and has been all weekend is Pastor Jesse Fenn, uh, who is a pastor at Hillside Church in San Jose. And he oversees the junior high ministry, the evangelism uh, ministries there, uh, as well as the men's ministry. He is a dear friend of our church, having been part of our church a couple, uh, for a couple years before going to seminary. And his wife, Melissa, is here with us this weekend as well. And she is also a very dear friend of our church and was a faithful member for many years. And uh, you all know that. Those of you who've been here this weekend have become very familiar with them. And so I hope you have been blessed, not just by his preaching, uh, but also just your interactions with them uh, during our free time. Uh, if you have not been here all weekend, uh, prepare to be blessed by the preaching of the Lord's Word. Let's welcome up for one last time, Pastor Jesse. Good morning. I wanted to see how loud the microphone would be for those first words. I invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Uh, it's been a great journey through the book of Daniel. Uh, again, our time has been brief. This is only the, the fourth sermon in a book that really deserves many, many more. But what we've done in the past few days is we have looked at uh, some of those powerful and yet not normative passages of the scripture. We've seen God work in some miraculous ways, and we've seen that he does that to encourage and to equip his people to not only survive, but to thrive uh, in a world that's not friendly to them, to be faithful in an unfaithful world. But I told you yesterday that the primary way in which Daniel wants to equip us is by showing us the future. And if we're walking down this long and hard and foggy road, uh, primarily what Daniel wants to do is lift the fog for us to show us the end, uh, to show us the finish line. And once we get a glimpse of that finish, we will be equipped to continue to put one foot in front of the other and keep marching on and to remain faithful in an unfaithful world. So that's what we're going to look at today. We are going to look at the end. Uh, we're going to focus on Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. This really is the climax of the book of Daniel. Uh, the first six chapters build to these two verses. The rest of the book kind of descends from this. Chapters 7 to 12 really unpack what's happening in these two verses. So we're going to focus on those two verses, but for context, I'm going to read all of Daniel chapter 7 up to that point. So I'm going to read from Daniel 7, verse 1 to verse 14. And if you haven't studied Daniel much, or maybe if you have, uh, these verses might be very confusing. They're very mysterious. There's all kinds of symbolism here, and you're going to encounter beasts and all of these uh, seemingly crazy things. But what's happening here is God is settling all accounts, and the true king is getting ready to take his throne. So that's what we'll focus on today. Read with me Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. 
Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet, like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions. Behold, a fourth beast terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had a great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in its horn were eyes like the eyes of a man." and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flame. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him court sat in judgment. The books were opened. I looked. Then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, given over to, the burn, to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion taken away. Their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Saw in the night visions. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be. Destroyed. This is the very word of the living God. If you were to visit my office at Hillside Church, uh, you'd walk in and you would see a poster on the wall, and that poster has 100 books to read. Uh, we got it off Amazon, and it's a, a cool little poster. What happens is you read a book and then you can scratch it off. So the, the books are hidden. You just see the title. When you read the book, you scratch it off. And I have a long way to go on that poster, but we have this one junior hire, uh, a very ambitious young guy named Azariah. And uh, when his small group comes up there to meet on Wednesday nights, he always goes to that poster and he always points out the same thing. He says to me, I can't believe that you haven't read Lord of the Rings yet. And he's right, I will confess to that. Uh, it's on my list, but the list is long, so it's, it's going to be a while. But I haven't read Lord of the Rings. Uh, but as any Tolkien geek will tell you, the movies are just as good, if not better, right? <laughs> Wrong. Any Tolkien geek will tell you that that's not the case. 
Uh, but for now, that's the best I'm going to do. So I, I love the Lord of the Rings. I love the Lord of the Rings movies. And in my humble opinion, the best character in those movies is Aragorn. And uh, Aragorn, if you've seen these movies or if you've read the books as most of us have, uh, you know that he is a hero. He is a great warrior. He is a protector. Uh, he's admirable in pretty much every way, on pretty much every level. Uh, but you start to realize as you progress through the story that he's also a king. And he's a humble and an unsuspecting king. But you come to appreciate this more and more, and especially if you've seen the third movie and you encounter this imposter who sits on Aragorn's throne. Uh, his name was Denethor. So Aragorn is the rightful heir to this throne of the city called Gondor, but he hasn't claimed his throne. So this man named Denethor sits on the throne, uh, and he is a monster. And in the third movie, you get to see this. He is absolutely unfit to rule this kingdom. He loses his mind. He has completely failed his people. Uh, he cannot fulfill his duties. He has no interest in fulfilling his duties and he's just evil all around. And the, probably the most uh, just grisly and unsettling scene in those movies is Denethor's death scene. Uh, and if, if you've seen those movies, you might remember this scene, but his son has gone off into battle, a battle that he couldn't win. His son was apparently killed. The enemies sent him back into the city, and Denethor's life is over, and he wants none of it. So he takes his son, again, who is still living, but he thinks he's dead, and he piles up all this wood and hay, and his plan is to just douse himself and his, his living son with oil and to light them on fire. And he does that, and that's when he realizes that his son is still alive, and at that point, it's too late. And again, in this just dark scene, you watch him on fire, just run out of the, the throne room and he falls off this clip and the, the camera pans back and you just see this ball of fire descending to its death. And it's just a, a crazy scene. And again, it's an unsettling scene. It's violent. And yet, it's also kind of a good scene because you've seen what this man has done you understand that this man is not the king. This man is an imposter. This man has no business ruling people, and he ruins lives, and he has ruined a kingdom, and justice is coming. And you watch him face his end, and at that point in the movies, at that point in the story, you are realizing that the true king is coming, that the day is coming when Aragorn will claim his throne and everything will change. And that's a really compelling story. And I would uh, submit to you that the reason that's a compelling story is because that fictitious story is actually grasping for a very true story. Uh, and Tolkien wrote those stories very much with that in mind. And uh, for those of you who know a little bit about Tolkien and his good friend Lewis, who I'm a, a big fan of, C.S. Lewis, they were we're good friends, and Tolkien was instrumental in leading C.S. Lewis to the Lord. And one of the, the truths that he was able to impart to Lewis that was really key in his journey to faith was he basically told him, you know, every good story is a weak attempt at the one true story. 
Because the story of the Bible features these themes of fall and redemption and of sin but rescue and and these great themes and this theme of an imposter ruining the land but a true king coming to claim his throne and make things right. Again, in, in the Lord of the Rings, it's fictitious, but that's a very real story. And that's the story of the Bible. Specifically, it's the story of Daniel chapter 7. The day is coming when the true king will shove aside every earthly authority and a Daniel 5 Belshazzar-like moment and the rightful heir to the throne of this creation will claim his throne and everything will change. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And I just want to say that this is a very practical doctrine. Uh, If you can understand, if, if you can understand and place before your mind frequently the truth that one day the real king will come and make things right, that will change your life. If you can have the future placed before you that will change your present, that will change the way you live. So that's what we're going to look at tonight And I want to ask this question, what can we expect when Jesus comes to claim his throne? Uh, We can expect from this text three things. First, we can expect the curse reversed. The curse reversed. And before we get into that, I want to very briefly walk you through the events leading up to this in Daniel chapter 7. And again, I will do this briefly, but it's helpful for context Uh, So Daniel has this vision. He sees four beasts coming out of this stirred-up sea. The first one he sees is a lion with wings. This represents Babylon. And what we see here is that God will deal with the kingdom of Babylon. Again, God is settling all accounts in this passage. The second beast that he sees is a bear. This bear represents Medo-Persia. God deals with the kingdom of Medo-Persia. Then he sees a leopard. The leopard represents the kingdom of Greece, and God will deal with this kingdom. And then he sees a fourth unnamed beast. It's described as terrifying and frightening and very powerful. Uh, This beast represents the Roman Empire. God deals with them. God settles all accounts. And then he sees ten horns, but then he sees another. This eleventh horn rises up, and this represents the Antichrist. And this is where we look deep into the future, and God deals with him. And this brings us to verse 13, where we begin to see this restored kingdom and we see the curse reversed. Now let me read verse 13 for us again. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Many years ago, Shakespeare asked the question, what's in a name? And uh, his famous tale of Romeo and Juliet. If you ask that question of the Bible, the answer is a lot. A lot is in a name. And for this first point, all I want to do is unpack the meaning of this little phrase, son of man, because there is so much theology and there's so much practical theology built into those few words. Uh, If you've read the Bible a fair amount, you might know that Jesus goes by many names. When you get to the Gospels, Jesus has many names. He's called the Christ. He's called Lord. He's very often called the Son of God, and there are several other names, but he has a favorite name. His favorite name to refer to himself by is the Son of Man. That's his favorite title, 
And every time he uses that title, he invokes this vision from Daniel chapter 7. And the people who are hearing that would have understood that. And this is made explicit in the Gospel of Mark, in this very climactic moment in Jesus' life where he stands before uh, those who are going to kill him. And he's asked in the scene in Mark 14, 61, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Again, that's Daniel chapter 7 that he's quoting there. Uh, So this is Jesus' favorite title for himself. And if we want to understand Jesus, it's crucial that we understand what this title means. And let me put it simply and walk you through it. What this title means, what the title Son of Man means, is that Jesus is going to reverse the curse from Genesis chapter 3. The Hebrew word for man is Adam. In fact, in many other places in the Old Testament, we could more accurately translate the term son of man as son of Adam. And in the early pages of the scripture, uh, that term son of Adam has a decidedly negative connotation. First of all, because of the original Adam. The story of Genesis is pretty well known, but God creates this universe, he creates the world, and he creates humans. He creates Adam and Eve to till the earth, to represent himself, to be the image bearers of God, and to have dominion over the rest of the creation. And we know how that story ends. Adam fails. And with Adam's failure comes darkness and this curse and oppression and injustice and suffering and everything that our world is plagued by this very day. All of that enters this world when Adam falls from grace, when Adam rebels against God, and he sins. That brings us to the world that we live in today. And the promise of Genesis chapter 3 was that Adam would have a son, and his son would fix it. But as you progress through the story of the Bible, you see that the sons of Adam don't seem to fare much better. Uh, So the first time you see this little phrase, son of man, it's used in the plural, the sons of men, and you find that in Genesis chapter 11, with the story about the Tower of Babel. And again, for those of you who know your Bibles pretty well, you might know that story, but the sons of man or the sons of Adam come together and they say, we're going to build this great tower, we're going to reach up to God, and we are going to make a name for ourselves. And what they're doing there is rebelling against God. And actually that Genesis 11 scene is kind of like a reenactment of what happens in Genesis 3. In fact, the way the narrative is written, it seems that the author is intentionally trying to reach back and remind you of Genesis chapter 3. That's the sons of man. And then we come to Daniel chapter 7, and we encounter a very different son of man. Because Adam inherited a perfect creation. But the beast of the field came, and he tempted him, and Adam failed. But this son of man, this son of Adam, came to destroy beasts, which he does in those first verses, Adam was given dominion, but he failed and he lost it at his death. But this son of man is given dominion and his dominion will never be taken away from him. Son of man came to succeed where Adam failed. A few weeks ago uh, at my church, I was in this discussion group with some men at our church. We're, We're studying systematic theology and the question was raised, and it's a very good question, Why does it matter that Jesus 
was fully God, but also fully man. So for 2,000 years, Christian orthodoxy has affirmed that Jesus, in this mysterious way, was truly God, and yet was truly man. And it's an interesting question. But that title, Son of Man, answers that question. And here's why it matters that Jesus was not only a Son of God, but a Son of Man. Because what that means is that God loved this world and these creatures. God loved his people. God loved his creation so much that when his creation turned against him, God didn't give up on it. Rather, he determined to fix things from the inside out. And he sent his son to come into this world as a human being and a human body and to make things right. And maybe another way to think about this is that the Son of Man reminds us that God deals with our sin, that Jesus came into this world to deal with our sin, but not only that, came into this world to deal with everything that our sin has done. Came into this world to deal with everything that Adam has messed up. So let me put it to you like this. The Son of Man has come to deal with sickness. Whether that's a common cold or that's cancer that entered the world in Genesis chapter 3 and Jesus came to reverse Genesis chapter 3. The Son of Man has something to say about sickness. The Son of Man has something to say about suffering. Suffering entered this world in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus came to reverse Genesis chapter 3. When the true king claims his throne, suffering will be a thing of the past. Jesus comes into this world to deal with the problem of meaninglessness, to deal with the the struggles in relationships, to deal with hurts, to deal with pain. Everything that enters this world in Genesis chapter 3, Jesus came to reverse. Because Jesus is a son of Adam Jesus comes to fix Adam messed up. This is what we have to look forward to as Christians. And for those of you who have been reading this text carefully, you might have noticed that actually what we have in this passage is not a son of man, but one like a son of man. And if you notice that, good for you, because that is very true and that's very, very important. And the word like in the Hebrew Bible actually means pretty much the exact same thing that it means in your English Bible. What it means is that this one like a son of man has a lot of similarities with humans, but he also has some differences. And there are two very important differences here that I want to show you. Uh, The first is that he travels with the clouds. You notice that. Verse 13, Behold, I saw with the clouds there came one like a son of man. Fish travel in the sea, humans travel on land, birds travel in the air, but only God moves with the clouds. In fact, in the ancient Near East context that this was written in, that would have been completely understood. Only divinity can traverse the clouds. This is one like a son of man, yet he's not just like us. There is something divine in this son of man. And the second difference, the second important difference is that he stands in the presence of God. 
He comes to the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is God. He is presented before him. Any Jewish reader would have known Exodus 33. No one can see the face of God and live. But this one, like the Son of Man, enters the throne room of God, and he claims his throne. And uh, often, I think we as Christians, if we, if we think deeply about this, we tend to think that the Son of Man emphasizes more of Jesus' humanity, whereas the term Son of God emphasizes more his divinity. But actually, in the New Testament, when Jesus invokes that title, Son of Man, for himself, more often he does that to invoke his divinity. And the reason for that is because Daniel 7, 13, and 14 is unmistakable. The Son of Man is divine. The Son of Man comes from God, and the Son of Man is God. So I want to ask you as we wrap up this first point, is your view of Jesus big enough? Is your gospel expansive enough? Is your, is your hope in Christ large enough? Do you look forward to a vague, kind of general sort of heaven Or do you look forward to a world in which Jesus fixes all of the fallenness that we experience every day of our our lives? Do you look forward to a world in which Jesus reverses Genesis 3? A world where sickness is banished. A world where brokenness is banished. A world where diseases are banished. Is that the Jesus that you worship? What can we expect When the true king claims his throne first, the curse reversed. Secondly, we can expect the kingdom claimed. Verse 14, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. If you have any British people in your life, They might tell you that Americans know nothing about royalty. And they might be right about that. Uh, We Americans are very casual people. Just a few days ago, I was visiting a guy from our church at Google, and uh, it's a very casual place, isn't it? Some of you might work at Google. We are in Silicon Valley. We wear jeans and t-shirts to work. We like casual Fridays. Uh, We like our politicians to be very down-to-earth. We're not very good at thinking about formality and thinking about royalty. Uh, But a few months ago, the whole world got to see a little scene of this, right? Uh, May 6th, the coronation of King Charles III. Uh, I didn't watch it because I'm a good American. No taxation without representation, right? But I did the next best thing, and uh, I read about it on Wikipedia. And here's some of the things that I read. 2,200 guests invited from countries all over the world. Super expensive art everywhere. Music that was incredible. And this one just blew my mind. There was gold everywhere. If you look at the pictures, gold everything. There was a golden carriage. There are golden crowns. There is just gold everywhere you look. And the cost, they didn't reveal the cost, and I understand why, because the cost is estimated to be somewhere between 50 million to 250 million pounds. 
And when you translate that into USD, we're talking 63 to $315 million for one day. For one day. I tell you that because maybe that will give us some mental furniture with which to think about verse 14. Uh, the scene in verse 14 is a coronation. Jesus is coronated as the true king of this universe. He claims his throne. The Son of Man is given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And again, notice in that word dominion, an echo of Genesis. Adam was given dominion over the creation. Now the Son of Adam is given absolute dominion for all time. With the dominion, he's given glory. Think about the weightiness of that coronation of King Charles, the significance, the seriousness of that event. Times that by infinity, that's what it looks like for Jesus to be given glory. He's given dominion, he's given glory, he's given a kingdom all to the end that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. In fact, a better translation would be that they should worship him. And here's where we see that this kingdom is unlike any kingdom. We live in a very diverse place in the Bay Area. And a few months ago, Melissa and I went on vacation and we were in New York City and the diversity of New York City is absolutely astounding. It's, it's not like the Bay Area. It's incredible. Uh, we stayed in Queens, close to the airport, and I was reading up on Queens a little bit. I did not know this. Apparently, there are 137 languages spoken in a 107-square-mile uh, region. The borough of Queens is considered the most linguistically diverse geographical space in all of the world. It's incredible, but it has nothing in the kingdom of Jesus. All peoples, nations, and languages. That means when Jesus comes to claim his throne, he will be worshipped in English, and he will be worshipped in Korean, and he will be worshipped in Lingala, and he will be worshipped in Albanian, and he will be worshipped in Mandarin, and he will be worshipped in Swahili, and in a thousand languages that you have never heard spoken in your life, Jesus will be worshipped. Revelation 7, every tribe, tongue, and nation will be standing before his throne. This is what we have to look forward to, and this is what will happen when Jesus reigns as king. And this has been the hope of Christians for 2,000 years. Many, many Christians throughout human history have had nowhere to look for hope but the future. If they look in the past, darkness. Look at the present, they see darkness. The only, the dire the only direction that they have to look for hope is the future. And Yesterday morning, I talked to you a little bit about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his story, and I, I kind of passed over this, but two years of his life he spent in a prison cell. And the reason he was in that cell was because a plot was uncovered to assassinate Adolf Hitler, and it was discovered that he was connected to that plot. He knew that there were many more plots like that, and what that meant was that as he sat in that prison cell for two years, he knew that at any moment, everything could change. Because at any moment, one of those plots could succeed, Hitler would be done away with, someone would take his place, new leadership would come, and everything 
would change. And Christians throughout the ages have lived in that kind of existence. And we are very shielded from that where we live in America, but Christians all over the world for centuries and centuries have lived in this existence where they know that everything could change in a moment when a new leader steps in. And Daniel 7 reminds us that that day will come. That someday Jesus will claim his throne, and that day will change everything. And that is our hope as Christians. I've noticed that we're a very spiritual people as Christians. We like our theology. We're very spiritual and sometimes can even be very theoretical. And that's why I think it's important to think about this text and to be reminded that this is very tangible, that this is very physical, that Jesus will come physically to claim what is his, and he will come physically in reality to overthrow earthly rulers and to claim what is rightfully his. And when Jesus comes, it's important for us to to know that there will be no more elections because Jesus will be on his throne. There will be no more kings. There will be no more presidents. There will be no more prime ministers or congresses or senates or parliaments or houses of representatives. The building that's just a block away from us will be meaningless. There will be no supreme courts, no governors, no dictators, no tyrants because this world will be a monarchy, because Jesus reign as king and his reign will be marked by peace and justice. Jesus will be king. How different will this world be when Jesus claims his throne? I want to ask you a few questions by way of application to help you examine your life in light of the end. First of all, is your Christian hope concrete enough? And maybe another way to say that is, is your hope real enough? Is it practical enough? Does it change the way you live? Does your Christian hope help you to live faithfully in this world? Do you understand that Jesus will one day reign as king in a physical intangible way? And does that truth change the way you live and the way you think and the way you worship? Is your hope real enough? Second question, do you live as if this vision of the future is actually true? And I know that if you are a Christian here today, you affirm the truth of the scripture and you affirm, therefore, that Jesus reign as king. Let me ask you this. Does the amount of anxiety that you have about politics really testify to that truth? Do you act or think or talk or worry as if the first Tuesday of November were the final word? Does your life actually reflect this truth? Do you have more hope in a politician than you have in the true King Jesus? And you say, no, of course not. My ultimate hope is in Christ. But I would push you and I would say, is it really? Is it really? How much time do you spend reading political blogs or listening to political podcasts or having political discussions or political arguments? And how much time do you spend meditating on the future reign of Jesus? Is your hope truly 
in King Jesus. Last of all, I would ask you, does the way you live your life testify to the reality that Jesus is a king? Jesus is a king. Would your life indicate that the words of Jesus are helpful suggestions or are they authoritative statements? Are they declarations? Because kings don't suggest, kings declare. So does your life represent the reality that Jesus is a king? That Jesus doesn't suggest? How can you testify to the truth of Christ's lordship by living obediently to what Christ has to say. What can we expect when Jesus claims his throne? Third and finally, the future secured. The future secured. Just a week or two ago, uh, a newspaper called The Economist released an article and the title was this. His, uh, the title was this. The econ- uh, excuse me. The coup in Gabon is part of an alarming trend. I'm going to read you a paragraph from this article. Coups, like colds, are contagious. On August 30th, officers in Gabon, a petrostate of 2.4 million people in Central Africa, became the latest men in armed uniforms who announced on a grainy state television that they had taken over their country. A month after generals toppled the democratically elected president of Niger 2,000 kilometers to the north, the apparent pooch underlines Africa seems to be hurtling backwards. The start of the 21st century, democratic transitions, shifting norms, and stronger institutions led to a decline in the frequency of coups. But in the 2020s, as the norms and institutions wither, and African democracy lacks champions, they are becoming common again. And as the article indicates, uh, this is commonplace around the world. One ruler takes over, he is toppled, another one takes his place, and on and on and on and on. And you don't have to live in the third world to understand that. Even here in the United States, we are on president number 46, which means we have had 46 administrations. And with every administration, you have new laws and you have new emphases and you have new challenges and sometimes they're for the better, sometimes they're for the worse, but it's a very true statement that the only constant in life is change. We live in an unstable world. And that's why the last half of verse 14 is so powerful. His dominion is an everlasting dominion shall not pass away in his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed when jesus reigns his reign is eternal jesus has no succession plan jesus has no term limits jesus can never be assassinated and there can never be a coup because jesus reign is unthreatened and the future is secure what a great word that is secure spend a lot of time worrying about the future. I think maybe we as Christians are particularly prone to worrying about the future. I see it with young people. I see it with older people. I see it with everyone in between, and it makes sense. At Hillside Church, we have a number of silver-haired saints, and I've had many conversations with them, many conversations in which they've just poured out their concern for their grandkids 
because they see the kind of world that their grandkids are inheriting. And they see how different it is from the world that they inherited. And they're worried. I understand that worry because the culture is changing very, very fast. And the cultural winds are not blowing at our backs, but they're blowing against the Christian church. And they understand that the world that their kids are inheriting will be worse for Christians than the world that they had. And their grandkids will live in a worse world. It will be harder for your kids to be a Christian than it was for you. And it will probably be exponentially harder for their grandkids to follow Jesus. The future will be daunting. But to see the future through the eyes of Scripture is to see something that's unshakable. It's to see a future that is secure. And I don't want to talk lightly of the future because if you read the rest of Daniel, you'll find some wild stuff. And the gap between 2023 and the new heavens and the new earth is a big and a hard and a treacherous gap. And I get that. And I think you're getting little hints of that every day. That's where we take faith, we take truth, and we preach that to ourselves and we remind ourselves that the future is secure. As we close, I want to ask you, how would your life be different if you really understood and really believed what the Bible has to say about the future? If you really understood and really believed that Jesus would come and claim his throne, your life will be different. I used to travel quite a bit uh, for work, and we didn't stay at nice places like the Hyatt Regency. It was La Quinta Inn and Best Western all around. You might think that those places are pretty uniform, but it turns out they're not. There are good La Quintas and there are terrible La Quintas. I have nothing against La Quinta, but I've stayed at some really, really bad hotels. Even before that, when I would travel for other reasons, I've stayed at some really, really bad motels. But here's what I learned. It's fine. Because it's only a day or two, and then you go home. You can endure a lot. You know it's temporary. And if you really understand and really believe what the Bible says about Jesus claiming his throne... What trial could you not endure? What suffering could you not weather? What awkward evangelistic conversation do you not initiate? What administration could you not joyfully survive? What heartache? What tribulation? What persecution could you not endure when at the forefront of your mind is that King Jesus will one day come back and claim his throne and reverse the curse and bring peace and justice? I think the Christians who live life with Daniel 7, 13, and 14 at the forefront of their minds are the kind of Christians who will make it through their time of exile They will make it and they will be received safely into the arms of King Jesus. And they will hear those precious words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray.
Our Father, we thank you that you have not forgotten about us. You've looked down on this world with mercy, with concern. You were concerned enough to send your Son. And you loved us so much that you didn't restart, but you sent your Son to fix what went wrong. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to think deeply on those truths, help us to look to the future, help us to live with eternity stamped on our hearts and our minds, because that will change the present. That will change how we live. So Father, help us to live well. Help us to endure and survive and thrive our time in exile. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be productive Christians in this world as we look to the day when you will make things right. Father, we praise you and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.